welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Move Daily Health Podcast. I'm Dane Wallace here with Freya Spence, and our guest today is Mr. Sam Gibbs. Sam is an osteopathic manual practitioner and director of clinical operations at P3 Health, a leading healthcare facility located in downtown Toronto. Sam routinely works with athletes, both professional and amateur, and has been a member of many medical teams, including those for the Toronto Raptors, Goodwill Games, Pan Am Games, World University Games, and every Olympics since 2008. While Sam is a seasoned sports therapist, he also works with non-athletic populations, driven by interests in the areas of neurology, neuroimmunology, and management of complex pain syndromes. Sam is clearly a man of many talents, so let's get this started. Sam, welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Well, we gave you a brief intro, but can you tell us a little bit more about your background, how you got into the industry? We know that you started with a little bit of AT and RMT, and then just tell us a little bit about your evolution to where you are now. Yeah, I think uh, probably evolution is the, probably the, the, the best word to describe it. I, and maybe giving you the five-minute story rather than the one-minute elevator pitch will give you a little more background. <laughs> um, so I, I, I never wanted to, I didn't know what I, I didn't set out to be a healthcare practitioner. Um, when I was a kid, I, uh, I thought I was to be an artist. So I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to, to draw and um, I went to an art school. Um, and when I got to the school and I started explored the programs that, uh, uh, that I was enrolled in, I knew that there were a lot more people who were going to make a lot more money than me and I was probably going to starve. <laughs> so at a, at a pretty young age, um, I always held on to the arts. Like my, my family was really big in it. But I knew that design was something that uh, was really underpinning that. So I thought maybe I could be um, a uh, engineer of some sort. And this is now maybe in the oof, going back, maybe like the tenth grade, ninth grade, tenth grade. I uh, I got a job in an architectural firm, and I was making blueprints, and I was like deep. I was in there. I was like oh, I wanted to to really uh, get my hands dirty and figure out if it was what I wanted to do. Um, I loved biology. Uh, that was something I was really good at, just without even trying. So um, there was always this fascination with biology, with science, and then this art thing that was always tugging at me. So I thought maybe I could be a biomechanical engineer. And I thought I made that up. Uh, but it was <laughs> it was actually a thing. Uh, after I explored it, I figured out that I didn't want to make heart-lung machines and dialysis machines. Um, so now maybe around the, the 11th grade... I, I said, well, I'm going to get a uh, job in a clinic and maybe see if this is where I really want to go. And I explored things like um, myoelectrics and prosthetics. And you know, I thought, you know, I, I really like working with the human body more. So getting into, uh, I, I got into a uh, athletic therapy clinic and the rest was history uh, because I, I immediately saw this is exactly what I loved. And I loved it at the time because I loved the idea of working with uh, someone who had a drive to get better. So rather than someone who just had to walk or had to breathe, which are pretty noble things, I thought it would be really cool to work with uh, people who were really good at something and had to get better and had to win. So I thought that that was going to be my life calling. And uh, uh, truth be told, when I first uh, applied to the program, it was a really limited enrollment uh, or acceptance. And I didn't get in. And I was pretty young. I was about 18. Uh, I applied, didn't get in. And I thought, well, life is dashed. What am I going to do now? And I went in for the interview. They said, oh, you know, you're the top, uh, whatever it was, uh, 19, but not the top 16. So, you know, try again. But I said, well, what do I need? They said, you can either go and get a uh, degree and a master's and reapply, because that's just the, the program was, was structured uh, at the time in a very particular way. Or you can get some experience. And I thought, all right, I'm, I'm going to go out and get some experience. And so I went to um, university uh, in Toronto. And I walked onto the track. And I walked up to a track coach. And I said, this is who I am. This is where I work, being this clinic. And I'd love to work with you. Whatever I don't know, uh, I'll take them to the clinic. And we'll, we'll make your athletes better. And I thought they'd say, like, get out of here, kid. I mean, we, we don't need you. But they said, yeah, sure. We don't, we've never had anybody come in and ask this way, so come on in. So I was working with um, uh, sprint jumpers, and at the time it was uh, Charlie Francis's team with 
Ben Johnson and all these guys who trained with him. It was after, obviously, the whole uh, fiasco and scandal and all that stuff uh, had, had come and gone. But uh, Charlie was still coaching. Uh, so I was working with the sprint jumpers, um, with Richard Rock and Pops Keen and some unbelievable, some best coaches in, in the country. And at 18, I had experiences that I shouldn't have had. I mean, I was working with uh, Olympians. I went to the Olympic trials in 92. I mean, it's stuff that that I, I looking back, I, I had no right being able to do. But I learned, literally, I learned from guys like Charlie. I learned from uh, uh, Waldemir. All these guys who worked with tissue. There was, an, there was an art to it. And so there was this artistic underpinning that I, I, I found that I was able to do. I, I found that I could see someone doing something and I could reproduce it with my hands with touch. And that's something, I mean, it's a very easy thing to say, but it's not very easy to do because if you seeing something and then knowing how fast, how, how, how deep, how far. So those are the things I was learning. And I'm eternally grateful to the guys who I was able to, to kind of watch and learn from because they were very good artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the whole art thing was something that was really important and um, got into the program I wanted to get into an athletic therapy. And... Uh, that uh, being so young, uh, I was uh, learning as I was going. And what I found was uh, the things that I loved, I really wasn't able to do because there wasn't a, a ton of manual application. Mm-hmm. And there, there still isn't uh, in any in, in physical therapy or athletic therapy. There are, there are sciences and they have to make sure you're safe. But, those, but the manual application was stuff that was uh, considered advanced. So maybe halfway through the, uh, the program, um, I was introduced to osteopathy through some of my instructors who were who were going through the program. It was a really kind of fledgling, uh, we'll call it a profession, in Canada uh, at that time. Got its hooks in the, the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I was in, in college in the early 90s, and so it was just starting. So picking their brains and asking them, you know, how, how does this whole thing work? I kind of fell in love with that idea. And I knew I wanted to do it, but I, I also thought that there had to be some things that had to go ahead of, of doing it. So after I finished athletic therapy, I did massage therapy, essentially to be able to buy time with, with patients on a table because I thought that's what I needed to do. Uh, and then I did osteopathy. There are a number of different programs. Um, osteopathy is a manual practice. Uh, basically, we use our hands. It's a very old practice. It even predates things like chiropractic arguably so there are a lot of it's a philosophy and things came out of it um, that are now kind of put in a silo things like craniosacral therapy or different myofascial techniques and all these fancy words but I uh, having gone through um, the training that I did I went through a program here uh, in in Toronto Canada uh, actually a couple programs um, one officially and the other I, I sort of audited uh, five years of the, the program and then I went to the UK and that's really where I would say a lot of my learning happened a lot of my 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 experiential learning happened because mm-hmm. I, was, I was introduced to a uh, methodology and a way of um, application that I hadn't really considered and that I would say was the first introduction into looking at the body as an integrative whole um, even though I went through a, a uh, a whole lot of years, uh, like seven or eight years of that being driven into my skull, that the body is an integrative whole. It wasn't until I, I was introduced to osteopaths like John Wernham, uh, uh, who were there, that I kind of started looking at things a little bit differently. So now I, I am really fascinated by the underpinnings of what I do. So I'm picking apart what I do in endocrinology, immunology, psychology, and personally, the way I <clears throat> the way I learn best is if I have someone bearing down on me and I have to produce a paper. So I've been doing schooling in those things, and that's just me. So <laughs> I think that's that, all <laughs> for us as well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like if exactly. someone gives us a deadline, okay, yeah, I'll exactly. research the crap out of that. Exactly. Exactly. So that's where I am now. I did a, a master's in human nutrition and functional medicine. Then uh, I did postgraduate work in endocrinology and, and immunology, and now I'm doing another master's in uh, applied neuroscience. And, and uh, they're all just questions. It's, uh, I don't really care about the document per se. 
I care about being ask, asking structured questions, knowing that I'm asking questions in a silo with a whole bunch of people who think in a silo and, and say to myself, ha there's no silo. You guys are all fooled and I'll steal this information and apply it to this, this broad thing. So, um, that's, uh, that's really what my journey is about now. And, um, there are so many different ways to make uh, advancements to, to, we'll say, help healing, uh, to, to foster a healing environment from, I mean, shamanistic things all the way to modern medicine and surgery. Uh, and the idea that something can work for somebody is fascinating to me. Why does it work? Why does one thing work for one, one person and not another? What is the body, body's real agenda? These are all questions that are only answered with... Um, taking all of these areas of science and putting them together. As much as there is osteopathy, there is no osteopathy. It's just a way that we interface with the body. It's a philosophy. And if we're really true to it, we'll try and learn as much as we can about the body, and then, and then we'll be really effective at what we do. So that's kind of been the guiding principle that's kind of brought me to now. And uh, I guess the, the epilogue of the story is having done all this hard work and all this um, head work and all the stuff that I thought was great to work with athletes, I've now kind of come to the conclusion that it's not as noble as I thought to work with someone who makes a million bucks and wants to make a million more. It's way more noble to work with someone who needs to breathe again and walk again and maybe lift their children and 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 uh, go to work to make money to drive a system. Those things are incredibly noble. So I, I'm looking at things completely differently. Not that I would have chosen to do anything differently, but the more I learn, the more I, more people I see that could benefit from from this type of this type of view whole body approach yeah. absolutely and within p3 the clinic that you're at now mm. can you walk us through a little bit what your approach is because we were talking earlier about how many people need to actually see you on the table versus how many people are taking a non-table approach it's all still healing but yeah. can you kind of walk us through how your approach is with those populations now well at uh, p3 we have in my opinion we have some of the best practitioners in the world um where multidisciplined practitioners can literally sit in one room much like Mayo, the Mayo Clinic perhaps <clears throat> but from an integrative approach able to sit in a room hear a story from a from a person and turn it over and uh, then have a, a common language and that's the important thing so we use functional medicine as a common language uh, within the walls of P3. And so everybody, it doesn't matter if you're a psychotherapist or a, a nutritionist or a naturopath or an osteopathic practitioner or whoever, a physician, uh, everybody speaks that language. And that's rare. Um, and we've got some incredible inter integrative and functional, uh, functionally minded uh, physicians there, uh, my partners, uh, and they We've um, been able to create a, uh, a method uh, of evaluation and treatment, I think, that gets a lot of, is able to catch a lot of people who fall through the cracks. Mm -hmm. So my approach there, um, if you're sitting in my office, my first objective is to figure out why, what, what your story actually is. Everybody has a story. And as unique as everybody is, nobody's unique, because the body only has a few cards that can play. If you, whether you are under stress or you've lifted a bunch of weight or you've uh, just run a marathon, you're going to have some inflammatory factors that are going to be released. And it's not like they're new. They're going to be the same for that person who's lifted something as they are someone who's, who's got a deadline tomorrow for, for a job or a test. So the question is, why is your body letting this stuff slip through the cracks? It's not, why are you under so much stress? And I have that conversation a lot with um, different people. Um, different patients. And, and I think it's a little bit empowering when they realize that just as a football player, if I took that football player and I put him into your your life as a stay-at-home mom, he probably would be under as much stress as you would be if I told you that you're going to be the starting lineman for, for, San, <laughs> for uh, San Diego, Absolutely. right? So yes. um, that, that, it's, it's daunting. And so now stress becomes something that, that is, um, uh, it's a much deeper conversation, chemical, physical, spiritual, mental. And so that's my first job, to figure out why, where is the body broken, broken down? Where are the pathways broken down? Sometimes it's neurological, sometimes it's endocrinological. They, not everybody needs to get on a table right away. So I'd say about half the people make it to my table. The vast majority of people, we, we're working with a screen 
and an evaluation process to figure out some of these pathways that might be broken for lack of a better word, uh, and then figure out where we're going to get the most bang for our buck if we, if, we, if we start to intervene. That's all good for me, but I want to make sure that there's something good for the patient. And so we have to leave the patient with really some sort of hope, <laughs> but some sort of message to know that they can take control of this entire process. And that's also something that's, that's uh, very important. Because if I can say, if I can tell you how to do something, that's great. But if you have to come back to me for this pearl of wisdom, I haven't really done anything, right? Mm-hmm. So we've, we've, I've got to figure out a way that I can empower you and that I can say, look, this is in your hands and this is what I want to do, but you have to be on board with this. And yeah. so this is, these are the, the steps that, that you can take to start to take that control back. And it's all about control. So rather than let, letting... IL-6 and IL-1-beta and, and TNF-alpha rule your life, we're going to decrease some of those, some of those stress and, and inflammatory mediators, and we're going to identify the things that are doing that immediately. That's going to affect your brain. That's going to affect your decisions. That's going to affect your gut. That's going to affect your everything that's, that's been plaguing you. A vast majority of those people come back and say, I don't know what you did, but I'm not having XYZ or XYZ. And then we can start to put in another level of interface. For me, it's my hands. And so it's all about signaling and it's all about information. Mm-hmm. So I've given you some information. You've taken that information and assimilated it and, and your body has said, hmm, this information, I, I'm rolling with this information. What more do you have? Now I can lie you on the table and I can put in another form of information. This is all receptor-based end organ stimulation. I'm taking a muscle and a joint and I'm p- applying a barrage now to your brainstem and to your cerebellum and I'm saying, okay, body, what are you going to do with this? Mm-hmm. You do that in the wrong situation, you're going to get a disaster because you're going to have a patient who gets off the table and says, I'm spent. I'm done. I don't know what's wrong. I feel like a lump of whatever and I can't move. Uh, or they might say, I'm, I have so much energy and I don't know why. If you don't understand that process, you're not going to be able to say to the patient, honestly, what I've done has done X. And that's a big thing to say because everybody on the treatment side, on this side of the table, wants to be right. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're not always right. And if you, the more ways that you have to appraise what it is that your tools are doing, the more respect you'll have even for the tools that you're using. And you might choose to use different tools. So that's, that's sort of uh, how consults go. And then the journey is different for everybody uh, because it depends on what they're coming in with. It depends on how their body has been sort of dealing with the problems that they have. Yeah, uh, that's, that's basically it. That's really astute. I mean, we, we see that all the time. People coming to us, they come to me for nutrition things. It's like, mm-hmm. nutrition's the problem. Yeah. I require you. Yeah, exactly. And it's just exactly. all about nutrition or they have something wrong with them. So like Freya, physically I have something wrong, like fix me kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? And it's the mindset you go in with it and it's the belief of, you know, is this person there to fix me or can this person give me the information mm-hmm. so that I'm empowered to fix myself? Yeah. Yes, the right. nutrition is just, I mean, that's what I've, I've found exactly the same thing. Nutrition is just a, uh, a way to, to interface and to communicate with the body. That's all you're doing. And... <laughs> I always say food is like a direct communication with your gut. Mm-hmm. Like anything you put in there is just you mm-hmm. having a conversation with your gut and then mm-hmm. there's a cascade from there. But a lot of people, I will say, I like that you guys have such an integrative model there because a lot of people mm-hmm. will come into us and part of the reason we work with a community of other practitioners and refer out is because they'll come to me and say, I need to lose this plus this and this hurt and I just need to work harder. And I'm like, actually, mm. I think what you need is is to not work hard. And that's that's a thing, a tough pill to swallow and I've had to try to swallow that one multiple times, but that's where we send them out. And some of them don't wanna hear it. They're not ready to, to take that, to realize that empowering themselves is actually stopping all the mechanical, physical, mental stresses and working with someone to help kind of figure out what they're, like a therapist of some Mm -hmm. sort, to figure out kind of what's the root thing that they can do to empower themselves because movement in an aggressive, intense way that they've been doing is kind of beating themselves up Mm -hmm. more. And it's like your body is just, it's not against you. It's just giving you the message that it's had enough. Yeah, exactly. And now, I mean, this is now with that viewpoint now if you look at athletes you have a completely different animal Um, because now you're talking about all of those perturbations and insults that are going to amount to either good performance or poor performance 
and you're dealing with a person who has who has most often this mindset of more is more is more is more and i have to do more i have to train harder i have to diet harder i have to do this harder because the next guy is going to win so this is this is um this is it's all psychology um how are they harnessing their brain and are they looking at it um either realistically or looking at it uh uh in a holistic way integrative way to figure out where the the potholes are so i mean that said uh all of the great things that we're able to do at p3 this same sort of philosophy uh now i've been able to I'll be a builder with uh, the program with uh, right now different athletic programs. I work with the national basketball program um, very heavily right now. And uh, the people that I work with are truly the top in their domain. Mark Bubbs and Charlie Weingroff and Jay Meehan and, and guys who are incredible thinkers. Um, and uh, I'm like honored that they work with me and that they've kind of taken me up on this, this crazy offer to, to, to work with me. And even Peter Jensen, who's a, fantastic sports psychologist we're able to we're able to sit down and have conversations like this it's not about hey what does what can psychology do in this thing no <laughs> we want to make a nutritional decision for a psychological outcome that's what we want to do we want to make a strength coaching decision for a healing outcome and so we're, we're constantly cross-pollinating and and, I, and when i'm doing something i'm saying hmm, i could we could work with this guy now and treat him now but what would that do for him psychologically tomorrow maybe we should so we we've all kind of come to the agreement that we all have a part to play in psychology we all have a part to play Absolutely. in nutrition we all have a part to play in in healing and health and all these areas all these silos that we would have we i mean Mark Mark Bubbs is a perfect example. I mean, his his journey is not unlike mine, where he's come through, and Charlie Weingraf, for that matter, where they've come through a, multiple different avenues and different therapies and thought processes, and they've created a model that is integrative. So we're able to sit down, and, and they're able to keep me accountable. I saying, really, we we really want to make this decision now. Why don't we? Why wouldn't we do this? Because uh, that would affect that decision, and it might tip it over the edge, and then we'll have we'll have a better outcome. Um, so we're, we're, we're able to do unbelievable planning. And uh, it's been slow, which I also love. I believe that building a, a business, maybe it's not a good business move and people will, will be able to uh, tell me otherwise. But I believe that building a business is a slow process if you want to do it right. Because if you have a chance to allow something to grow organically uh, and not necessarily virally, because that's still organic, but something to grow naturally you get a, a really strong system so with that mindset and with the mindset of the body and the integration i mean i started a, a couple of scholarships at uh, some schools uh, some universities here and all of the people who've kind of come out of those pro those scholarship programs this has been going on for about 15 years now i'd say 80 percent of them still work with with canada basketball with the program so there's been this uh, incredible upswell of support and like-minded thinkers, and they've gone on and done more work um, to grow themselves in the same way that we have. So we're seeing all these little clones. So it's really, it's amazing to see. Uh, and the programs as they grow are growing in the same way. So I think that there's going to be more thinkers like ourselves and working with athletes with this model is extremely powerful because now we know what the insult or stress would be. Mm -hmm. We can harness that, right? Yeah. And now it's like, what can we do to intervene with the stress response uh, before and after the stress mm -hmm. so that we can kind of cheat the body or cheat the system so that it's not looking at this lion that it's got to fight. As mm -hmm. a lion, it maybe is looking at like a tabby cat. And we'll be able to deal, work from almost a stress model mm -hmm. to be able to uh, evoke higher performance. That is the only way that I can rationalize a coach that says, go harder. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the athlete's able to go harder, mm -hmm. right? It has nothing to do with the nutrition. It has yeah. nothing to do with the fancy yeah. stuff, the osteopathizing stuff, or any other thing that I do. You have a you have a, a dude who yells at another dude, and the dude wins a gold medal. Like this is reality. 
It's the same as, uh, so my family and I, uh, we all race. I used to do trail races. Now I do cycling ones. And my dad and I would have this conversation where I would be just gassed. I felt like legs were just, I was talking them along, nothing else. And then I'd see the finish the next like 500 meters coming out of the woods and all of a sudden I would literally feel like, okay, legs are just a different part of me and they're gunning it. And it's like this massive surge of adrenaline and just talking about it, I can feel like, <laughs> but it's, it was always fascinating. Cause it was like, I knew that at some point I would get a kick. Hmm. And if I tried to tap into it a little too early, I couldn't, it was literally when my brain saw that finish and it was like, okay, cool. They're a different part of me. And now I've doubled my pace and I'm sprinting past. And it would happen every single time. I think my mom's the only one who was like, no, they just continue to feel like lead, but the rest of us were just like mm. no idea. And, um, yeah. I love that. That's actually an area of research that's really ongoing right now with people yeah. arguing where in the brain does where that belong how can exactly. we stimulate that can where's we give the them silo? headphones i know <laughs> yeah. where's the silo exactly. but that's just it it's exactly. like is it this part of the brain is it that part of the yeah. well you know it's all of it and it's all integrative exactly. and it's based on experience mm-hmm. too with the coaches mm-hmm. like because sometimes maybe you're the person where that person yells go mm-hmm. and you perceive it as aggressive mm-hmm. and instead you turn around and start telling your coach off <laughs> or maybe exactly you're the athlete who's like yeah yeah they really just want me to succeed and you do go exactly it's it's amazing so we 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 rationalize stress uh i mean i've i've heard i've heard unbelievable uh unbelievable explanations from different athletes and they say well it's not that bad or it's uh um he didn't really mean it i mean and it goes into dangerous places right obviously because you, you you start to well he's not abusive really well, it's okay. No, no, but th- it's still it's a stressor. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it's um, that fascinates me. That that whole process fascinates me, and I think that the the key is in there. The kernel is in there. We just don't know exactly how to tease it out. Mm-hmm. And it's not even to say well, if if we ever do that, we're gonna be in a better place um, because the body often, what I found, is finds a way to confound the smartest people in the room. So we have to keep on relying on each other. And that's where this kind of sense of community comes in, where your knowledge is going to help my knowledge grow and building teams. Uh, we, are, we are social beings. Uh, we're designed to be in teams. Like this is, this is just the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you put someone in solitaire and their mind goes nuts. And that's yeah. the way it is. We're not so, reptiles. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's a big deal to be on your own for an entire marathon. <laughs> it, it really helps to have a team with you. So this is this is what we this is what uh, the things I'm thinking of now, uh, where I'm I, I feel okay with some of the tools that I have, mm-hmm. but now it's about figuring out the body, and why doesn't the body like me? Why doesn't it accept all the tools that I have? And so that is the now it's like honesty, and when it comes down to it, I have to be uh, sort of I guess the word is humble and 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 ready for to start dropping and letting go of some of the tools that I've accumulated uh, over the years. Because that auger that you only use once, it might not be the thing that you really need in your toolbox, even though it was a a $50 tool that you really like. Um, You might have to let some things go. So don't, I I, I tell people, tell students and tell uh, different people who come to me, if if they're coming to me for mentoring, don't hold on to things too tightly because it'll, hurt when someone has to rip it from your hands because it doesn't do what you think it does and it's okay just you you put down a thousand bucks to learn some crazy technique it's okay you can let it go Uh, you have to be ready to because something is going to be better that comes along and there's going to be new new thoughts and new processes yeah and it doesn't open up like when you i I find it's (laughs) how i've tried to explain it to other coaches um is that it's like when you're a kid and you're trying to collect all the seashells or all the rocks at the beach. Eventually, your hands are full. And to mm-hmm. put, pick that next purple one up, yep. you have to put some down. And I know that's a very simplistic analogy, but I find a lot of coaches um, sometimes get married to a few different methodologies a little too heavily. And I have found that working with people um, in pain has actually been a great learning ground because it's like, huh, I thought that was going to do this, 
but the feedback from the body and from the person is this mm-hmm. okay cool let's let go of that and see what happens over here to make the nervous system feel mm-hmm. safer and it's like wow that worked better than I thought it would. Awesome. Absolutely. But again, it has to be like, it's, it's that humility that you mentioned is just like, we don't have all the answers. Our yeah. job is to empower other people and to work with other people to combine all brain power, but it comes from a mutual respect, mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the more I've learned the underpinnings of the sciences of what it is that I think I'm doing, the more that that uh, that analogy, which is perfect, of holding all these seashells, you see one more beautiful seashell and shiny rock. I mean, do you need it? Why do you why do you need it? But the more I learn these underpinnings, it's like, well, you know what? I can I can actually carry less and do more. And so that that real fancy thing that I put all these years into learning, this is why it works. And then you run into someone who does something completely different. They just poke someone in the eye or they just uh, you know rub some cream on their belly and yeah you know that 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 rash or that headache it's gone all i do is treat rashes and headaches all day and this is i don't know anything about what you do sam but i just do this and you and you're blown away by something that's so simplistic and you're like what is the mechanism that's doing this and you, you have to say you know am i doing something am i missing something why is this working uh, why is it that they're they're treating the same human beings that i am and I'm seeing, they're seeing change and something that I, I find maybe difficult or I use a completely convoluted way of going about it is either wrong, you know, is either right. These are all the questions that you should be, you should be asking yourself every day. So there, you should always be turning over your knowledge. And so there's this idea of lifelong learning that I, that I kind of push that you, you have to be challenged all the time. I, I, uh, was, I've done some presentation to different uh, medical schools and uh, different uh, professional schools and I have a model of injury that starts with comfort uh, in that you you first you stay in this comfort zone as a practitioner and then you you, you quickly it, the step down from comfort is ignorance where I, I don't know what I don't know right uh, and then from there you you can easily slip into uh, complacency, and I don't need to know what I don't know, right? And then you get into negligence. Right? Yeah. Right? I should have known what I didn't know, mm-hmm. and then you get injury. So it, it starts with this kind of comfort zone, and it's really easy to step down. So the antidote is to never be comfortable, and to always be kind of learning and 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 being pushed off your off of your rock a little bit, so that you have to defend what you do know mm-hmm. just to yourself. And if you lose in that argument with yourself, be ready to let go whatever it is that you're, you've been holding on to for so long. Because if you fight to hold on to something, you're going to miss something. Mm-hmm. Ignorance, complacency, this is all going to happen. And I, you see it time and time again where people mm-hmm. argue and argue and argue and argue and oh, oh maybe we, we shouldn't have done that. Yeah. And now there's consequence. So I think the true, I think it, that is absolutely true. Obviously, it's true with the body. When you're training someone, you would say the same thing with the, the human body itself. If you do the same thing over and over because you're comfortable, you're not going to make any gains. You've got to stay uncomfortable. So it's the same model. And if you try and, and do that, that uh, uh, 60 kilo snatch, kettlebell snatch, you're going to destroy your, your body. Mm-hmm. You're going to injure yourself because you've thought that you could do something you, you couldn't do because you're using some crazy thought up training methodology that really does not do it doesn't doesn't cut it absolutely never seen any of those oh yeah we were dissecting that yesterday well it's funny because uh when my i was i was figuring out what i wanted to do after university and i was like do i do a phd do i do a master's do i it, a lot of questions a lot of uncertainty and then um when my mom asked me what i wanted to do i was just kind of like I want to work with people mm-hmm. as opposed to in a lab because I think that's a better fit for me mm-hmm. after having worked at a sports clinic. And I said, I want to keep learning. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like I've stopped learning. So I think I'm still in the right place. Yeah. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's yeah. just like, nope, those are my two things. If I'm still accomplishing that, if I feel like I'm not, I'm doing something wrong mm-hmm. with my time. Yeah. And I mean, this is one of the big reasons we wanted to have you on the show was this mm-hmm. integrative approach. Mm-hmm. You know, we see a lot of dogma in the health industry. So yeah. just getting thinkers, yeah. just you know, people who think, you yeah. know, people who aren't just tied to one specific 
form of treatment. Yeah. It's just, we need more of this and more of this information out there to help the vast majority of people. Mm. And so I know you've spoken a lot about, you know, basketball players and that population at P3, are you help? You're helping other populations as well, non-athletic populations. What are you seeing more of with these non-athletic populations in terms of pathologies that are coming in? Is it heavily stress-related? Mm. Is there anything mm. else you guys are seeing more and more of? Yeah, no, good question. And I think uh, all of if you just walked into Chapters Indigo or just went on Amazon and you and you did a search of the most popular books, they're all sort of self-help books now. <laughs> they're all yeah. introspective, and there is a lot of because the internet is so pervasive obviously uh and it's so accessible uh, a lot of people there are problems that normally would have walked in the door that maybe aren't walking in the door in the same way anymore now there are deep autoimmune type problems that are coming up where your body is beating itself up and whether they're they're, they're actual or i won't say contrived but they whether they are a uh, full-blown real uh, or they've been something that is the product of information that is happening much more Whereas before, those people might not have even known why they feel horrible. Now, they've got the internet to say, wait a minute, I could have Lyme disease, or I could have X disease, or Y disease. And so, some people have self-labeled, and they've come in and said, I think I have Lyme, or I, I think I have SIBO, and they'll give the laundry list of reasons why. Is that a good thing? I don't know. I think you could sit down and you'll probably have a, a, a lot of reasons why it might be good and why it not be, might not be good. Um, but it's absolutely good if we are able to find some of these pervasive issues and pervasive um, uh, irritants that we're able to treat. That is a, a huge shift. It, it's, a, it's a cultural shift and a social shift where we are seeing people with a lot of chronicity who now maybe have hope that, that things can be changed uh, rather than languishing either at home or the office or you know on the on the pitch um, with the, these um, feelings of you know absolute horror or absolute malaise or you know just feeling awful mm -hmm. and not being able to do anything about it so I would say thanks to the connectivity of the human race now people are coming out of the woodwork but at the same time uh, people are coming out of the woodwork who are still steeped in a medical system that is label based Labels. so it's very very so, so it's very very difficult to um to mitigate that mm -hmm. phenomenon uh, unless the healthcare system changes and now we're getting into a deeper a deeper and this but this is how it works health Absolutely. is related to economy is related to social is related to like this is how it works and so if we want to change health then we have to change economics we have to change the stewardship of the of the mm. planet we have to we have to change all these things and it's a it, it's a there's there's a tipping point for each one and, it, and they're inextricably linked and i think the honest people will look at themselves as a i'm just a lowly practitioner working in my office how am i how am i affecting climate change by treating someone's neck yeah you know what there is a there's a bigger thing that's going on here so that's just how it works. So I think we're seeing the product of that certainly at P3 where, um, I mean, we've, we've put ourselves in a position where we have uh, uh, both success and the ability to appraise people's neurological condition or uh, immune condition. Uh, so those are the, that's the population that we see. I think that as soon as you take some of the great things that we've learned and apply them to a performance model, mm -hmm. uh, there's absolute magic happens. Um, but helping someone to uh, get out of that ditch, yeah, that's that's uh, probably the thing that we're doing the most of. I love that, and I love that you guys, uh, I mean, you even just reference it as a condition as opposed to a label. It's like this is the condition, the state in which it's functioning or losing function, mm -hmm. and it doesn't trap anything in. My big thing with uh, labels has always just been some part of that might fit, but it doesn't fit the rest of you. Mm -hmm. And when you live just within the parameters of that specific one, you might not find healing. Mm -hmm. And uh, just the fact that you guys are taking such an integrative approach, you're looking at multiple potential conditions or states of being, I find leads to so much more healing because we don't put a roof on it. With Labels can have a time and place. I, I definitely understand that, but they also don't dictate the function of the human being thereafter. Mm -hmm. And uh, as such can be a little bit limiting. So that obviously takes, <laughs> your experience took a long time to develop um, and a lot of great influences in there. If you could distill down, we always ask our speakers this, if you could distill down 
one peak moment that stood out throughout your career at some point as a bit of a switch? Is there anything in there that stands out to you? It's a good question. I would probably say working working with um, Olympic athletes was probably one of the most defining experiences, not because uh, all of the great things, like you're able to represent your country and it's such an exclusive thing and blah, blah, blah. But professional athletes are different than Olympic athletes. They're, one is not more elite than the other, but uh, Olympians are, for the most part, truly in it for, for winning because there's, there's, they're not making millions of dollars. That, that creates a, different, a, a much different person. If I say I'm going to give you give you a million bucks or you know even ten bucks for what you do, there are, there are different motivators, and there's and what you start to really rely on is uh, your skill. And it's arguable, but you start to rely on your ability to execute because as long as you can execute, you're going to continue to make money. And sometimes uh, you've been justified by making this million bucks because the guy beside you is only making half a million dollars. So that means that you're half a million dollars more valuable. So you're able to put that value uh, kind of proposition over top of what, you, what you're doing. Do. Right? Yeah. So now, do you really have to perform all the time? Or do you just have to build your stock? Mm-hmm. Like these are all, This is a real deal. Yeah. Now, the Olympics, either you do or you don't. You got to, for the most part, you got about four minutes, if we're, if we're generous with most events, mm-hmm. to do what you do and to prove to a whole bunch of people who are watching that you actually belong, to, that you actually mm-hmm. uh, should be there. It's a very different situation. And to be in that pressurized situation and now layer on top of that the emotion of the idea of an entire country thinking about you doesn't even matter if they know what you do whether it is table tennis or you know rugby you are representing something bigger than yourself and you are you, you can't help but feel when you're there at in the village that there are a whole bunch of that there's a lot of responsibility and i mean nobody would really everybody would say yes yes and nod their heads oh yeah that's really cool but unless you're there you you really can't fathom what that's like because you really do feel like the little group of people who wear the, 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 the flag that you represent are your family and everybody else is against you. It's, it's something. Like it is really something. And even the practitioners take that on. And it's not that, there's, that, that it's war, no. but there is a connotation of war, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can only, I say all the time, you can only represent your country the three ways, war, politics, and sport. And that came from I mean, a, a coach that I worked with. He kind of coined that. But I mean, it's... That's the, the truth. Mm-hmm. Like you, you can't, and those three things are all linked together. So if yeah. you're walking the, the village, you see war, you see politics, and certainly you see sport. So I, I think that that was the first time I really saw that. And there's a sense of urgency. So you can never say no to somebody um, where you, you know, if someone says, I left my wallet in El Segundo, uh, you, you say, okay, I'm going to get it for you tomorrow. Or I'm going to get it for you now. We're going to figure out how we're going to fix the problem. Like there's, it's never, well, that's too bad, right? You have yeah. to suffer because the person's got four minutes. And so it was, um, it, it forced, it forced me to check certainly ego at the door because although I knew some fancy things, the person who I was about to interface with might never have had what I'm, what I'm selling. And now if I do something that they don't understand, how are they going to feel? Because I don't have a second chance. So I've got one shot and they've got one shot. And that four minutes that they're performing is my you know, big head full of knowledge going to help them? Or are they going to, when they step on that line to go, are they going to go, Do, is that right? Right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's real deal. Mm-hmm. So if you think you're great, head on over there to the, to the <laughs> Olympic Games. And not because you think you can help somebody, but because you might not. And there's a whole lot of stakes that are involved when you might not. Or when something, and there's some other person who's just doing the most basic thing. And it might not even be a therapist. I mean, sometimes these people are traveling with athletes who, they, they, what's, what's their credential? They got no credentials. But they provide a service mm-hmm. to a person who needs it mm-hmm. at that moment. 
it, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, could, I could talk about it forever, but it's, it, it was definitely, it definitely changed the way I thought about what I did. Mm-hmm. Probably the most harrowing or influential experience was working with Christine Girard. She's a, she's an Olympic lifter. And, um, I had never worked with Olympic weightlifting before, but I was on the I was on the uh, core medical team, which is a team that kind of takes care of the the Canadian contingency at large, and uh, and so I I uh, had the opportunity to work with um, with weightlifting and specifically uh, with Christine, who was a medal hopeful, and I just learned so much in a few days, and uh, while it was going on, I I I. I Actually, I checked my phone after the event, but while the event was going on, I was receiving a bunch of texts. And they were all asking, are you coaching her? You're, you're always beside her. What, what are you doing? What's going on? And it was a stream after stream after stream when, famous, I got, man. when I got back to the, to the village. And it was because she, I, I said, Christine, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do in this, in this event like for you? And she had, a, she had some problems that she was working with. And... She said, I just need you to be, to sit right here. And she just had a, there was a chair when you're kind of on deck, ready to go lift. I just need you to sit here and keep me calm. And so it was like, okay. And so I was literally sitting there and I was saying, you can do it. You give 110%. <laughs> and, and, and just saying, and, and, you know, saying yeah. I, I just have to keep her calm. Yeah. And, and every lift I, I, I came out and I was like, is that okay? She's like, yes, that's perfect. That's perfect. That's yeah. what I need. <laughs> And you know, I was, uh, you know, I was, I was pulling everything out. So, is there psychology? Absolutely. Yes. And there was because what she needed was to be told that her injury wasn't going to yes. going yes. to stop her from being Absolutely. able to do what she was doing. So, when it came down to it, uh, she was uh, kilos or ounces away from being able to lift. Should she lift? Should she not? She missed the first lift, and it came to the second lift. Can I do it? And and she asked her coach, "What should I do?" He said, "He said, well, you know, you should you, you should go up and wait." Uh, because of the way that uh, this is going to pan out, we're going to try and we're going to try and max your lift. And then she turns to me and she says, "Can I do it?" And I said, "Yes." That's <laughs> the I only just, answer. That's the, that's only, the answer. only answer, though. I said, "Yes." Just yes. Yes, you can do it. <laughs> so, I mean, there was no deliberation. Yeah, she's standing on the stage and she's about to go for all the marbles. I mean, and her story is is special because she lifted and she got bronze, and it was the first time that a Canadian had ever gotten yeah. bronze. Amazing. Yeah. And then it turned out later that her that her the two people who who led her in, in gold and silver, they were they tested positive for, yeah. for drugs. So now she has a gold. I mean, it was just it was no one sees the behind the scenes stuff. Uh, so it was really really cool to be a part of that and. All the fanciness and the, the the schooling and all that's it all goes down the window, out the window, because it really it came down to an answer of yes, or you can do it, or mm-hmm. give one hundred ten percent, or you know keep your foot in the door and your head in the clouds, and all these <laughs> yeah. all these pithy yeah. sayings yeah. that I mean I wasn't that cheesy, but it really came down to keeping myself yeah. calm and just being able to mm-hmm. put a hand on her and say okay this is let, let we're ready to go let's go let's go. People will never be able to get that unless they they're able to experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but the takeaway is it happens all the time. So it doesn't. <laughs> yes. You don't have to go to the Olympics. Yeah. It happens all the time. What you say matters. And I mean, this is from Charlie Weingraf. I mean, what you do matters, and it's all about mm-hmm. cost. So, what is it that you are doing? Why do you want to do it? First, make sure it's noble and it's mm-hmm. it's it's fully for the patient. And then, what is the cost of you doing it? And there is a cost. So you're going to, because there is going to be a response, a stress response, which is from, I mean, Cellier, from, which is, granted, it's outdated and there's way better models to work uh, uh, off of now. But there's still this adaptation response to everything you do. Whether I poke you in the eye mm-hmm. or I give you a vitamin C pill or I, I tell you to lift hard or I say, go, there's going to be a stress response. So now what is the cost of that? Are you going to bury a person? Or are you going to get them out of the ditch? Yeah. I mean, it's a fascinating, fascinating thing. So I really saw that firsthand with these nervous systems at the at the Olympics that were so f- finely tuned to be able to handle different levels of stress, but absolutely snapped under pressure of stress that they weren't uh, aligned to, which is, I mean, talk about fascia. That's yeah. basically it. So um, using that, that model, that model of health, that was the thing that I used to navigate the interactions with the people there yeah. in this 
pressure cooker mm -hmm. uh, in these spaces with people they don't know who are only related to them because of the colors that they wear on their, <clears throat> on their jersey. Fascinating experience. Um, and uh, it, it really shaped. That's yeah. interesting. I, I think we could probably speak to you about stuff like this all day. This is great. Yes. But we are running a little short on time here. So we have a few rapid fire wrap up questions that we're right. going to send your way. You ready? Yeah, I think so. All right. What is the most impactful book you've read in the past year? Mastery. By? We can look it up. <laughs> Robert Greene. <laughs> By Robert Greene. Check the show notes. <laughs> That's always my challenge. What is your personal uh, non-negotiable self-care tool? As a practitioner, as a human being, as a father, what's your non-negotiable self-care daily tool? To not turn on the radio. Love that. I tell people not to read the news or listen to the news all yes. the time. Get in your car. Thank you. And not turn on the radio. Yes. I challenge everybody listening to do it and that, see if they can do it. <laughs> that is awesome. Thank you. I've been talking to more and more clients about doing that in the last uh, year especially. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of clients who are reading the news or watching TV right before bed and wondering why they're having terrible sleep and wake up feeling like crap and are all super stressed out. It's like, turn that off. Don't watch that. Within a week, they feel magnificent relative to where they were. It's That's a great tip. Um, and just to segue off that, if you had five minutes with someone, what one thing would you try and impart on them to help their well-being? Could be turn don't turn on the radio, but mm -hmm. if you had another one. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, probably that a large percentage of what they feel, uh, what they are feeling, and what is going on with them can be changed by changing their mindset and changing their perception of what is going on. A, a lot of disease is, is fear-based. And unfortunately, viruses and bugs and all these other things are really good at activating areas of our neuroaxis that, that just promote that. Yeah. So if you can take control of your own perception of what's happening, uh, you can, and you can be more objective. It's very difficult to, to, to do, real easy to say. You will be in a completely different different space. That's essentially what I try and do with each, with every patient or with everybody. That alone is empowering. Just yeah. operating out of like love and awareness as opposed to fear and fear mongering. Mm. It's very easy to find, especially on the internet mm. as per your earlier uh, comment. So our, our final one though, is where can people find out more about you and P3? Mm. What are your main, <laughs> what are the main I, sources that you'd like us to send people to? Uh, I mean, I kind of fly under the radar. I'm not really on social media because I kind of live that. But uh, wise, <laughs> exactly. Um, but uh, uh, I mean, if it's P3, P3 Health is in Toronto, Canada. Um, easily findable on the internet. P3Health.net is our URL. Um, I mean, the Canadian basketball national basketball team, Canada basketball, is another kind of area. I'm really easily found in those those uh, those spaces. Uh, I, t I teach and I speak, but those are probably areas that uh, I can't really get away from. So I'm easily, easily tracked down in one of those haunts. Awesome. That's great, Sam. Uh, I think this was uh, really, really good. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We might, we might have to do another one because I feel like <laughs> if I feel we can like we're, pressure you into it. Yeah, because I feel like we were talking for about five minutes. And I'm like, it's like an hour later. What's happening? So, so yeah, man. So just thank you so much for coming on and speaking with thank us you. today, and uh, and we absolutely look forward to. Uh, talking to you again. Likewise. Thank All right, you man. Much. Have a good one. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to the Move Daily Health Podcast. We will talk to you next time. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening. <laughs>